So we left off a few weeks back. It was fun to kind of get away, and um, I'm grateful for getting back and being here. The um, we left after Genesis three, but really when we went through Genesis three, primarily what I wanted to do is deal with the enemy, so we weren't ignorant of his devices, and so that we could uh, know how to respond, know how to uh, what attitude we should have. Uh, towards the enemy, and we also talked a little bit about uh, uh, what the curse was and so forth. But I want to back up and do it one more time through three, only this time we have four topics. One is temptation, one is sin, what's the result, and what's the provision. And so I'm going to read through, once again, chapter three, and uh, let's see if we can't glean some more. Uh, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch, lest you die. Well, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasing to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman you gave me to be with me. She gave me the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, Well, what is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till, the, till you return to the ground, for out, of the, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all the living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, let Uh, The man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. Now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat 
and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what was the temptation? If you look at it closely, the first thing Satan does is he says, Half God said. In other words, is that really what he said? Did that really what he meant? Satan tempts Eve right off the bat to question what God had commanded Adam. Number two, Satan draws attention away from all that God had provided for him and points out to the one tree that was forbidden. He accuses God of withholding knowledge and the ability to be like God or become a God herself. The third thing is he's accusing God of holding back information on Eve. Now, he lies about the consequences, too. He doesn't even say, you surely will not die. So these are the temptations. But now she also sees the usefulness for the food. It's edible. She sees that's good for food. And the sixth thing is Eve is pleased by its appearance. The word pleasant there is desirable, wished for, longed for. From it you get lust and appetite and coveted. But it's an object of desire. It's pleasing in appearance, an object of desire. In the seventh part of that temptation, Eve knows that eating the fruit will reveal good and evil. The name of the tree says so. And it will make her wise. The word wise there is the word prudent, circumspect, wisely understood, prospering. In other words, they gain insight beyond anything that she's ever known. And comprehend and even result in a knowledge and a wisdom that only God has, right? Isn't that what the temptation was? You'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. And so far, this was unknown to them, never experienced. It was above them. It was a secret. It was now made a curiosity and a desire and a lust for that knowledge to have that ability. We can be like God. You know, that's a common thing these days. Um, And in fact... You know, to, well, we'll get into that more. Um, So now you have this smooth-talking serpent getting her to question what God said, why God would say anything about this tree, and cast doubts about any consequences, saying, you will surely not die. It's interesting how Satan will season lies with like this common sense. Everybody knows you're not going to die, right? God didn't say that. That's not what he meant. Are you sure that's what he meant? It kind of appeals to that, you know, common sense. If if uh, if it wasn't a lie, all right, lie. Nothing to worry about. You'll be fine. You know, he seasons the lies with that. Uh, you know, telling you you'll be all right. It's okay. Go for it. So to sum it up, it looks good, tastes good, going to make me smart like God. If you want to turn to First John, chapter two. We're just going to do verses 15 through 17. The context of 1 John is, is, um, you know, our, our, our fellowship with the Lord, our knowledge of the fact that we're sinners, and that the Lord's our propitiation. He covers us. He's the mercy seat. Um, but in 15, he's talking about uh, the world. Um, He says to them, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And says, for all that is in the world, number one, 
the lusts of the flesh, number two, the lusts of the eyes, and number three, the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's of the world, and the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You have the three things that are, are uh, they fit exactly what was going on with the, in the temptation in the garden with what Eve was uh, being tempted with. You know, the lust of the, the, the flesh. It's going to make, you know, it's good for food. It's going to make me healthy. I can eat it. The lust of the eyes. It looks good. It's pleasant. It's desirable. And the pride of life, the pride, I'm going to be like God. I can be like, remember what, what Satan, we talked about a couple weeks back, a few weeks back was, uh, what was his sin? I will put myself above the Most High God. And it was pride was his sin, and like lightning he fell. He was cast out at that point. You know, lust is desire, craving, longing for what is forbidden. The word literally means to turn upon a thing to mull it over, to continue to churn and turn it over in your mind. You know, uh, um, roll it over in your heart and in your mind over and over and over until it just begins to consume, take you. Now, that's the word lust for the flesh and, and for, um, for the eyes. Pride, the word means it's an empty trust in one's own strength and ability. You know, we talk about pride, you can... Think of different things you might say or do, and, and you look at somebody else and you can say, well, that's pride. Well, we don't know, but what we do know is in our own hearts, when we're trusting something of our own strength, and we start to think that we're the ones that are going to be the ones that can make it work, and, and um, certainly we want to be able to do things and, and have a, you know, to work and have a job and so forth. That's not what I'm saying, but the idea that that we are in and of ourselves sufficient for all these things. You know, empty trust in one's own strength and ability. What it really is is despising God and taking glory and taking credit to oneself. Now, these are the temptations we endure. Uh, but 1 Corinthians ten twelve through 13 says, He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, but he provides an escape. Well, what are some of the escapes? Matthew 26.41 says to watch and pray lest you enter into sin. Watch is to be awake, give attention to, be vigilant. Vigilant aware of the fact that there's going to be temptation. And uh, enter there means to go in, to partake, to allow sin to come alive, to come to life. Galatians 5.16 says walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk means to proceed, actually like a soldier in a row, to, to follow in order, to go in the way that you're supposed to go, to direct one's life to and how to live. The word to fulfill for fulfilling the lust is finish, accomplish, perform it. It comes to maturity. It comes to completeness. Psalm 119.11 says, I hide your word in my heart that I may not sin against thee. The word hide there is to treasure it up, to store it up. In this world, we're going to have temptations, but it helps to avoid putting yourself in those situations too. You know, if you have troubles with the, uh, you know, whatever the place is, you know, don't put yourself, don't go there. You can think of all the examples, but I can let you search your own hearts. Whatever those things are that seem to be uh, um, uh, tempting to you, well, don't allow yourself to be put in those situations as best as you can. There's enough that comes before our faces. So what is it? 
get into the Word of God, hide your Word in my heart, and uh, pray, watch and pray, be vigilant, and walk in the Spirit, not after the things of the flesh. Don't make provision for the flesh. These are the escapes, because we are going to get tempted. But these are the escapes. You know, when you're in the middle of a temptation and you feel like there's nothing you can do, first off, quit rolling it around in your mind and, and just pray and ask God, you know, can you deliver me from this? And I'm sure he will, because he doesn't desire that you sin. How did Jesus handle temptation? Let's go to Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. Yes, in fact, Jesus was tempted. Kind of brings up a question, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but are you already in sin just because you've been tempted? And we'll kind of get to that. Well, Obviously, the question here is, you know, how did Jesus handle temptation? Well, we know the Lord never sinned. He was perfect and without fault, without blemish. Um, But if you look at Luke 4, 1 through 13, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Well, then the devil, taking him up on the high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give thee, give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. And at that time... Satan was, had all these kingdoms in his, in his grip. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Jesus answered and said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Why? For it's written that you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. For good? No, for an, until there was an opportune time. You know, but notice how Satan will use God's word and try and twist it and try and take it out of context and make a temptation. So notice the phrase, too, also, how many times he says, if you are the Son of God. He's trying to cast doubt, trying to cast question. You know, if, that's, if you're the Son of God, do this. I want to see if you can do this. Now, Jesus was hungry and tempted with bread, and it was a temptation. How did he answer? Well, he put it in perspective. God's word is bread. Jesus himself is the bread of life. Now, Jesus was taken to a very high mountain and shown all these kingdoms in the world and all their glory and all their wealth and all their power. And you've got to wonder, these days, some of the people are the wealthiest than they've been in history. Um, but certainly there were kingdoms. Even Solomon had, a, had the wealthiest kingdom of his time. Um, and all he had to do, though, to have all this, according to Satan, was to worship at Satan's feet. Now, Satan wanted Jesus at his feet. What did, he ta- what did he say to Eve that we read earlier? 
you'll bruise his heel, and he'll bruise your head. Remember that word for bruise? We talked about a, a few weeks back. It means crush. It means to seize, to grab, to strike. But that word means to gape upon, like it's like the carnage, like the, what's happening in this place, what's happening with the heel and what's happening with the head is so ugly, so horrific, that you just can't but gape upon it. Well, what's taking place there? Well, it was Jesus who crushed Satan's head and his heel. That was the point of contact, the heel and the head. This is the point of carnage, destruction, where Jesus tramples the head of Satan, crushing his power. The power of sin is death, and the power of Satan is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 27 says, All the enemies are put under Jesus' feet. Ephesians 1, says, All principalities and powers are put under his feet. And by his resurrection, the power of sin and the power of death have been defeated. Now Jesus was put up on a pinnacle of the temple. And he was tempted by Satan, throw yourself down. And, you know, the Bible says the angels will pick you up, you know. Well, that's tempting God, isn't it? I mean, should we jump off a bridge tempting God to say, well, you know. But notice what's going on. He's put up on the high pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. He can see all around. Think of what he's looking at. Uh, From the pinnacle, he could easily see all of Mount Moriah. That was Temple Mount, where he also saw the very place that Abraham raised his hand to take Isaac's life. But God stopped him. And, uh, you know, he said he would provide himself a sacrifice. Jesus also saw from when he was there, Golgotha, and he came into the world to die on the cross. He knew that he would be that sacrifice for the sins of the world. But this wasn't his time. Jesus says, when it's my hour, it's my hour, but not before. And here Satan is trying to to get him to throw himself down. Um, Satan didn't know. He, He... he did not know what was going to happen on the cross and that he would be t- paying for the sins and defeating him in, in the power of sin and the power of death. And um, Satan, didn't, Satan didn't realize that. He thought, well, if I can get him to throw him down and maybe he'll die. And now this whole thing's over. It was before Jesus even began his ministry. And so he would have defeated or thought he could defeat even before things got going. He knew he was the son of God. Remember the demons knew that uh, Jesus was the Son of God, and he trembled. Um, Satan was not ignorant of who he was, but he was ignorant of what was going to happen when Jesus rose from the dead, when he broke the bonds of death for us. So Jesus saw Golgotha. He knew where he was going to be sacrificed. Was it a real temptation to Jesus, you know, to be told these things? Remember what he prayed in the Garden of Eden? You know, if these things could pass from me, you know, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. So how does he respond to Satan? Don't tempt God, you know. So is it a sin, the question, is it a sin to be tempted? For that, we look at James 1, and looking at 13 through 15. When does temptation become a sin? Um, you know, we're tempted day and night. We're not, we do fall, we do fail, we do sin. It's part of our nature. But being tempted is not a sin. 
you get thoughts thrown in your head from who knows where and why. Um, things come before your face for who knows where and why. Like I said, try not to put yourself in them circumstances the best you can um, because uh, that you got enough to deal with. So verses uh, 13 through 15, James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But notice this, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Notice verse 15, this is the turning point. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down to the Father of lights, with whom whom there is no turning, uh, there's no variation or shadow of turning. And, um, you know, it's like when you're looking at the sky, the clouds are kind of moving and they're kind of rolling over each other. The Lord doesn't change. He's not shifting from one appearance to the other. The Lord is constant in the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, but notice, drawn away. The word there means lured with bait. Like the smooth-talking harlot or the guy with the next big money maker, or the Gnostic that's promising the hidden knowledge that Satan was promising Eve, you'll be like God. The word conceive means to seize, take as a prisoner, to catch. And not until we allow temptation to win us over by yielding it to it does it become sin when does temptation become sin when we yield when we begin to roll it over in our minds to the point where we can't it's just like we've talked ourselves into it eve chose to take the fruit looking for pleasure looking for higher knowledge looking for wisdom adam took the fruit he basically just chose to ignore god's word you know, he's not sitting there looking at this tree going, hmm, nice. He just look what Eve has and he takes what Eve has and, and he eats it in, in utter rebellion um, against God. Disobeying God's command, just one command about the tree, like we all say about everything. You had one job, one tree. Couldn't you just, you know? But uh, the Lord knew what he was doing. And God told King Saul, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of God, now he has rejected you from being king. Because God gave Saul simple instructions when he went and took the Amalekites. And uh, instead of killing them, like he said, and giving the whole thing to the Lord, he took some for himself. He disobeyed the Lord. It was rebellion. That's what, you know, it seemed like it was harmless enough. I'm just having some food. It looks pleasant. It's no big deal. I'm not going to die. Well, that's rebellion. God said, you will surely die. With Adam and Eve, well, what's the result? With Adam and Eve, nakedness before God, shame before God, fear of God, hiding from God, blaming God, and death. This is the result of sin. What about today for the sinner without Christ? Same list, nakedness before God, Hebrews 4.13, and there was no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his eyes, uh, to the eyes of him who we must give an account. And the verse right before that is God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. As you go through the word, it does open up our hearts. It does reveal our hearts before us. He knows. 
We're naked before him, but a lot of times we don't understand until we get into his word. Shame before God. Revelation 3.18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire, that you may be rich and white garments, and that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Now they're afraid of God. They're hiding themselves in the, in the trees, in the woods around. And uh, Matthew 10.28 says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. And that's what he said. You will surely die. And he did sin. Now they're afraid. They're hiding. What does sin do for us? Same thing. All of a sudden we realize we're naked. We're vulnerable. We're ashamed. And we're afraid. We're looking over our shoulders. Um, I didn't look up, but there's a proverb. I can't recall what it says that uh, the, um, or I can't recall what verse, verse it is, but you know, a, a man who sins looks over his shoulders as if he's being chased by a thousand, you know, and nobody's chasing him. You're just looking and worried. You're afraid. You know, blame. They're hiding from God. Revelation uh, 6.15 says, In the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And then there's this blame game going on. Adam blames Eve, but really he blames the Lord. He even says, it's the woman you gave me, Lord. You know, isn't that amazing? And in, in the same thing that James is talking about, um, you know, don't say that God tempts. It's not God that tempts us. We're drawn away by our own flesh. James is talking to a mixed multitude of uh, believers, and among them, there are those that are just seeking to take advantage of the work that God's doing um, among those believing Jews that James was writing to. Just like Adam, they're trying to blame God for the temptations and therefore their own failings. And ultimately, what's the result? Well, the death penalty. James says, when desire has conceived, you act on it. That word desire, or uh, it, it's uh, when desire has conceived, that means you're acting on it. Uh, gives birth, there equals bear fruit, is what the definition of. Full grown now means it's finished, perfected, accomplished to the complete end. And bringing forth means there it is. The thing has been made. It's done. What thing? Well, the death that is the fruit of sin. Your sin always has a result. You may think you're not hurting anyone. But you are. You're walking, first of all, in rebellion against God. And I don't mean you, I mean we, I mean us. Um, when we sin, we're grieving the Holy Spirit, who you were given because you were set apart to God, to be holy, sanctified to Him. But you're also changing who you are. You know, you might think nobody sees, nobody hears, but you're changing who you are. Uh, and it's going to change how you relate with people. If your sin... Uh, is you know looking at things you're not supposed to be looking at. Well, what are you going to do when you're among the brethren and the cistern? You know, uh, and so it changes who you are and it changes your character, changes your relationships and your friends and family, and also the body of Christ. You reap what you sow. There will always be something produced in our lives from walking in sin. It will bring forth. It will you know bear its fruit. The thing will be made. 
and it brings destruction. Well, what about grace? What about mercy? What about forgiveness? Yes, and me too. Praise the Lord, because His mercies are new every morning. But let's look at Romans 6. I'm going to just read the whole chapter. After laying, after laying that much of a background, I think the, uh, it kind of makes a little more sense when we're talking about sin and uh, how the Lord set us free. So I'm going to read the whole chapter and we'll talk about it a little bit. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live ongoing, walking after any longer? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we'll certainly also will be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And now if we died from Christ, with Christ, we believe that he shall also live, we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in, in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law now anymore, but under grace. Well, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. You know, by the way, that word certainly not, if you want to just mark everywhere in Romans that word is, it's pretty interesting, um, especially concerning Israel, but just underline it and find elsewhere in Romans. Um, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? And are, are whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? But God being thanked that through you, that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you couldn't be righteous and the fruit what did you fruit did you have then in the things which you are now ashamed for the end of those things well it's death but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of god servants of god you have your fruit to holiness and the end is everlasting life not death for the wages of sin is death 
but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, he's not talking about um, somebody who stumbles. He's talking about giving yourself over to it. Why yield? And he's talking about members, our hands, our feet, and everything in between. All that we have, all of our members, yield those things to the righteousness, the things that God gave us to do. Lend a helping hand. You know, put your feet to walking to where the need is. You know, and put your heart and mind and thoughts to where they where the Lord is calling you to be and helping other people and loving Him and worshiping Him. Why yield now anymore to something that He has delivered us from? Does that mean we don't stumble and fall? No, but we don't walk in it. And that's how Paul lays it out right now in Romans. Now, this is simple to understand. Simple enough. But it's really hard to do, right? It's hard to live. And that's why there's a Romans chapter 7 and there's a Romans chapter 8. In Romans 7, we still find ourselves tempted in these mortal bodies. We still will fail. But we are delivered from sin's power over us. Thanks be to our Lord and Savior. Romans 8, we can now walk in the Spirit and not the things of the flesh. There is no condemnation, Romans chapter 8. One of the best chapters in the Bible, if, if you're struggling with whatever you're struggling with, keep a bookmark in Romans chapter 8 and read through it. You know, Call on the Lord. We talked about how do you find the escape? Pray. Get into God's Word. Don't go to places where, you, where it's going to be a lot more tempting. Just don't even go there. Now it says in Romans 8, there's no condemnation. And we have the gift of eternal life. Jesus took the wages of our sin and he died in our place. If God is for us, who can be against us? And who can stand against that? It's all in Romans chapter 8. No one and nothing can separate us from his love, the love that we have in Christ Jesus. Doesn't it make sense to lay aside the sin which so easily besets us and finish out this short time that we have here? Uh, and run that race that's set before us. It's not easy. It's simple to understand. It's not easy to do. And that's why we need the Lord. That's why we need to pray. That's why we need to get into the Word. You know, what has God's provision for, what was God's provision for Adam and Eve? We've talked about temptation. We've talked about sin. We've talked about um, the consequence, the results. Well, what was God's provision? Clothes. God gave them clothes, didn't he? They, they sewed some, some fig leaves together, but, you know, why did God say, well, that's not good enough. I've got to kill an animal, get the skin, and clothe you with skin. And he did that himself. He says he made for them skins. They were now aware that they were naked. They were aware they're guilty, they're ashamed. And he covers them with animal skins. An animal had to die to provide that, that covering. And I think you're starting to see the picture. You know, in the day they ate, a death occurred to cover their nakedness, their guilt, and their shame. And God made the clothes themselves to cover Himself to cover them. In the next chapter four, we'll get to it, but um, in the weeks ahead. But you know, we find that there is animal sacrifice already going on. There was no command given for that, but because of what God did, and He obviously established through that. Sacrifice. We find uh, animal sacrifices are made to God by, uh, by Abel. But they died spiritually that day. They could no longer dwell in the presence of a holy God 
in their sin. Their life could not be eternal at that state. You know, now they're going to get old and they're going to die. Just like he says, the wages of sin is death. Why they didn't die that day? Well, God provided something for them. If you want to turn to Romans, um, we're just right there already still. If you want to go to, uh, back to chapter 5, and we'll be coming back to chapter 3 later, but chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, that death, wages of sin is death, the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there's no law. But nevertheless, death was imputed. Death was reigning from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, well, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounds to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one, um, from one offense results in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses, he covered all sins throughout all time, all, all sins future, that results in justification. The free gift which came from many offenses results in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And therefore, as through one man's offering or offense, judgment, just, excuse me, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift of, came to all men, resulting in justification. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so all, also by one man's obedience many were made righteous. I was, uh, yeah, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. Now this kind of takes it to the time of Moses. Uh, but where sin abounded, grace abounded more. Now there's the law, makes sin aware, uh, makes us aware of our sin. So that is, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death did reign from Adam forward. Uh, God kept them from that tree of life. You know, if they would have gone and taken, uh, that's another thing he did for them. How did God provide for them? Well, he provided clothes. But he also provided by not allowing them back to touch and take fruit of that tree of life lest they live forever in sin and corruption. And boy, what a state we'd be in. Eternal corruption and sin like that. Their shame was covered temporarily, but they would grow old and die. So death was reigning from, from Adam. Now, except for Enoch, he walked with God and the Lord took him. Also, later on, Elijah would be taken up in a chariot of fire. And these are both pictures of the rapture of the church at the coming of Jesus Christ that we're looking forward to so much. And um, if we're alive when he comes, just like he, uh, Elijah, just like Enoch, 
Back then, though, the law of Moses used the blood of bulls now. Remember, uh, God killed an animal to cover with a skin. Abel was sacrificing to the Lord by giving a, uh, killing his lamb. Um, but the law of Moses used bulls and, and goats and doves and all manner of sacrifice that was in the law of Moses. But it didn't completely do away with our sinful nature. It was um, temporary. Um, sin and death still reign. Still reign to this day as far as this life is concerned. As far as this fallen world is concerned. Um, back then, they were covered. Their sin was covered. But now, a perfect sacrifice is necessary for them and for us to completely wash us clean. If we're going to touch that tree of life, if we're going to live forever, we have to be completely clean, washed white as snow, if we can, so that we can walk in the presence of a holy God for all eternity. Turn to Revelation 22, 1 through 5, and also 12 through 17. That tree of tree of life, the tree of uh, that was in the Garden of Eden, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there was no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They'll need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever. Interesting, this tree of life, the river flows out from the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb, and it goes down, and there's a street that's either on either side of it or in the middle of this river, or uh, however that's laid out. But the tree is on both sides of that river. So the river just runs right through it, and the tree is up and over on the sides. Um, the way that's described, I can't wait to see what that is, but it's providing for all and for the healing of the nations. In uh, 12 through 17, Jesus testifies to the churches. He says, And behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is Jesus talking. Blessed are those who do his commands that they may have the right to eat, uh, right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. And Jesus I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. We will eat of that tree of life. We're going to drink of that water of life. It's the tree of life, and we're going to be with the Lord forever. We're going to be in eternity forever. It's so hard to imagine, and yet, in fact, Paul says, you know, these things I saw, or not even saw, but things I heard, I can't even describe. It would be sin. It would be a blasphemy for him to try and describe what he saw. 
That's how good it is. That's how much it is way above and beyond our imagination. He calls this worth, this world. Think of the best part of this planet you would go to that would be the most like paradise, the most that you could imagine. And then imagine there's no mosquitoes. And then imagine there's no you know, scorpions or whatever you want to be that's the most beautiful, lush, whatever. God says that this world and every bit of it is a tent. Just a little pup tent, a little, little two-man pup tent there on, on the floor. What he's prepared for us, he calls it a mansion or a castle. Put the two side by side. And that's just the beginning. Not only that, it goes on for eternity. We see lots of colors we enjoy them. We hear lots of music and songs and notes and we enjoy them. We know people. We know creation. We enjoy it. It's just a pup tent for what's coming for us. Set your eyes on the things that come. Um, So we will eat of that tree. We will be able to live with God forever. And uh, God has made us a new body. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. We got a little bit of time. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, well, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, here we go back, he's given us clothes, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And I sure am glad because, you know, sometimes it just is hard and life is hard, but he's given us that promise, that seal, that guarantee. What a joy, what a confidence we have in that. And so we are always confident, knowing, verse verse, uh, 6, that while we were at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present from the Lord, uh, present with the Lord. Revelation 3, 1 through 5, and then 14 through 21. If you don't want to go there, I'll just read them. Um, Revelation 3, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things he said, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Notice verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father, before his angels. So he'll be clothed. He's made a a body for us. In verses 14 through 21, uh, the lukewarm church, to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things say the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. 
Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and I have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed in the anoint and anoint your eyes also with eye salve, salve that you may see as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous, repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice, opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit on, with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. To him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. God has made a garment of white, for us to wear before him. It's funny, there are those, both of these, he says, I know your works. Um, Matthew 22, 1 through 14, if you'd turn there. Clothes are important. Clothes are important in heaven. You know, I was, I actually had a whole little sidebar I was going to do about clothing, all the things that, you know, we Really, most importantly for us as believers, clothing can can be uh, important. You know, to be uh, modest, to be you know not to be ostentatious necessarily, and that's a whole side study. I guess I'll leave it there. But Matthew twenty-two one through four, uh, one through fourteen, and Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parable. And said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. And again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted calf are killed, all the things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways to his own farm or another to his business. The rest, they seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies to destroy those murderers and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding's ready. I haven't anybody to go. Those who were invited are not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have a wedding garment. Clothes are important. He said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the guy was speechless. The king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing and teeth. Wow. For many are called, but few are chosen. Clothes are important. The clothes at the wedding feast are going to be important. This is a parable, but it's a parable about the wedding feast, the feast of the, the king and his son. Well, that's the lamb. That's God's lamb. We sang about earlier, um, the lamb of God, perfect. The wedding feast of the bride and the lamb, there will be those that show up in the wrong clothes. What is this about many are called, but few are chosen? 
Well, he's talking about a righteousness. Remember in Revelation, those two churches we read about? He knows their works. He knows their, their, but he says their works fall short. I know your works, but that's not what's getting it done. He says, there are many righteous people, good people. Many go to church. Many are called to righteousness, is what he's saying, and have the law written on their hearts. They're good people. They do good works. They have a life that, that, as far as they're concerned, they're doing the best that they can. What did Jesus say? You don't know that you're blind, wretched, and naked. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. But only a few. Many are called. Many have that righteousness. But only a few recognize and are willing to confess their inability to keep that law. They're, to be able to keep that law that's written on their hearts. You remember Jesus, he would hang out with the sinners. He hung out with the, the prostitutes. Um, they don't have any problem knowing. Everybody, anybody on the street's going to tell them they're a sinner. And by the looks and by the, the attitudes that people have, there are people who have no doubt in their mind that they're a sinner. And they either decide to live in that shame or they are ashamed and they start seeking the Lord. Only a few recognize and are willing to confess their inability to keep the law. And that's what Jesus is talking about. The broken, the contrite sinners reach out to God in humility for his righteousness, not for their own righteousness. The few that recognize that. Few are chosen. Naked and ashamed, and they know they can't hide. They know they're looking for clothes. That's all they're looking for is clothes. You know, a lot of times when we're reaching out to people, that's the biggest stumbling block there is, is to try and get through their self-righteousness, to get through their religion, to get through that attitude that they have, that they're, they're doing just fine. They don't need a Savior. And then those that do have a church or they do have something, we've got our, our liturgy, we've got our religion, we, we keep our, our codes and our rules. And uh, Jesus has so much to say to the Pharisees. Um, in fact, this, this was in context um, to the Pharisees. They were there when he, they heard this. And the next part of the chapter, they're, they're trying to f- figure out how they can plot to entangle him in his words and take him out. But what about us? We were naked. We were ashamed. We knew we couldn't hide any longer. And we were just looking for clothes. We came to the Lord. That's our testimony, looking for his righteousness his pure white garments in exchange for our filthy rags. And that's what happened on the cross. One last verse is Romans 3, chapters, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who simply believe. Isn't that what he says? For there is no difference. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The best behaved person on this planet and the worst criminal in jail. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, Paul used to say and did say he was the chiefest of sinners. He wasn't talking about the world. He was talking about himself. He wasn't comparing himself to anybody else. He just knew in his own heart that he was the chiefest of sinners. He can't point and look at anybody else and say 
you're the chiefest of sinners and I'm doing a little bit better than you. Nobody can say that because we all know ourselves. We don't really know anybody else's heart other than the fact that we know that all are sinners and fall short. But that's what he says, 21, 26, where did I leave off? So, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, freely by grace. Wow. Whom God set forth as a propitiation. And as many times as I've been up here, I like that word, and you know it. What does that word mean? It means the mercy seat. It's the place where all that judgment took place. He is the one that took that judgment for us. That word propitiation. How? Well, by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That he might be just, and for us, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, that really is all I got. It's um, so important for us not to be trusting in our own righteousness. It's so important for us to, to, to not walk in sin. Don't present yourself to sin. Don't allow for it. You're going to stumble. We're all going to stumble before we get home tonight, likely in thought, word, or deed. You know, for me, I'll probably be impatience, uh, saying something stupid, and who knows what else. I'm not even going to guess. I know I'm the chiefest of sinners. Um, and I know each of you need to know that you're also the chiefest of sinners as far as you're concerned. And that's that reason we know we're naked. We know we're ashamed. And we can't hide anymore. And we're looking for clothes. Well, now we're clothed in his white garments. Um, you know, we sing that song, His Robes for Mine. What a glorious thing. What a glorious song. Well, let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you, uh, and words fall so short, um, just to come before you with gratitude, to come before you with thanksgiving uh, for what you did on the cross for us. Lord, for any who may still, it's so tempting and so easy to trust in our own righteousness, Lord, I pray for any who are here that need to just lay aside sin that so easily besets us, to trust in your righteousness, not counting that laying aside as their own righteousness, just because they can, they're free. They don't have to. Lord, I just pray for them and pray for myself. Lord, that you continue to let us walk in the Spirit and not follow after the flesh. And so we lift that up to you. We, we trust you. We want to be watching. We want to be praying. Lord, we want to be in your word. And Lord, we want to follow you and walk the way you'd have us walk. So we just lift this all up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.